0: So if you can begin taking your seats, good to see everybody. For those of you that don't know, my name is Jason Faber, and I'm an assistant pastor here at Sovereign Grace Church. And I'm trying to look out in the crowd and see if I see anybody who hasn't been here before in our series. But if this is your first time with us tonight, we're going to break the session up into two sections. The first um, section will be me direct teaching to you. And then the second section will be where you can uh, send in your qu- uh, questions via texting. The number is going to be down here. And we don't have a, a microphone down here right now, but one of the guys will get that going for you, um, so you can use that as well. But let me pray, and we'll jump into what we're going to talk about together tonight. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the privilege that we have of being your children, of being in a relationship with you, reconciled through the life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're thankful for the gift of your word that teaches us um, how you have redeemed us in him. And now that we are redeemed, how you have called us to live so that our lives can reflect your glory in the context of every relationship that we find ourselves in. So Lord, we humbly ask this evening that you would come and speak to us through your word, that you would give us minds that um, understand what you're teaching us, and that we would have hearts that desire to be closer to you and to walk in closer relationship with you, with our spouses, with our children, um, and with our brothers and sisters in Christ and everyone around us. So we ask that you would glorify yourself in this time, and that you'd be pleased to magnify yourself in our lives. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, what I want to do tonight uh, starting out is just do a brief overview of where we've been so far since we started talking about marriage. And the first question that we answered was what is a gospel-centered marriage? And we saw that a gospel-centered marriage is a marriage in which we realize that our marriage is to be uh, is a picture of God's relationship with his people, of Christ's marriage with the church. And so all marriages either tell uh, truths about that relationship or lies about that relationship, depending on how we interact with each other um, f- between the spouses. And um, furthermore, that's just an understanding of marriage in general, a gospel-centered marriage understands that we have been shown covenant faithful love by God. And our calling now and our privilege is to show that covenant faithful love that he has shown us to each other in the context of our marriages to glorify him. So a gospel-centered marriage is a grace-saturated marriage. It's a, it's a, a marriage that's um, characterized by extending grace to each other, not beating each other up with the law. And then last week, what we looked at is what are gender roles in a gospel centered marriage? How do, how do those fit in? Um, the way that God has made us as male and female is a, a distinct calling in the context of marriage. And for husbands, we saw that male headship is this sacrificial, humble, loving, seeking to build the other person up approach to leading and protecting and providing. That's the calling. Of a Christian husband. And for a Christian wife, what uh, female submission looks like is taking all of the gifts that God has given her and using those as a helper in relationship with her husband. She's not a doormat. She is an incredible resource, a partner, a co heir with Christ um, to her husband. And so if he cuts her off and doesn't listen to her, or she cuts herself off from him, um, then he's cutting himself off from one of the greatest resources that God has given him. And tonight what we're going to look, ab- look at is um, conflict in a gospel-centered marriage. And I, uh, none of you are surprised as to why we need to talk about this, um, because all of our relationships involve conflict. Anytime you take two sinners and put them in relationship with each other, you're going to have conflict. That's just the way that it is. And, but before we even talk about it at a human level, we need to talk about um, the ultimate conflict, the most important conflict that we have, and that is the conflict that we have in our relationship with God. And really, Scripture, from beginning to end, is, is nothing less than a story of conflict. It's a story of conflict. Now, the story didn't start out that way. When God created us, He didn't create us um, to live in conflict, That wasn't his original intention. You see this beautiful picture in Genesis 1 and 2 of man living in in this beautiful harmony with God. Being at peace with God. Being at peace um, with his spouse. And being at peace, as it were, with, with all creation. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. And then all of that changed at the fall. All of that changed At Genesis chapter 3 and let's let's turn together to Genesis chapter 3 starting in verse 1 and if you haven't noticed this yet we keep going back to Genesis again and again and again and I hope it's it's showing to you how pivotal um, the the first book of the Bible is to our understanding of how we live lives our lives as Christians it's extremely important to our Christian worldview. So Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read to verse 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said, He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the first thing that we see here is that before there's any conflict between Human beings, there's conflict with God, isn't there? God gave Adam and Eve this command, do not eat of this tree that's in the midst of the garden, and yet they did. And so they entered into this conflict with God. They rebelled against him. They turned and said, you're not going to be the authority in our lives. We're going to be the authority in our lives. And so before there was ever conflict between humans, there was conflict with God. And see, out of that conflict with God, All other conflicts spring forth. We see that all throughout the rest of Genesis chapter 3 as God pronounces um, the curses on the man and the woman and on the serpent. He says, there's now going to be conflict between you and the woman. Actually, we see the conflict before he even says that, don't we? God comes to Adam and says, what did you do? He says, it's that woman you gave me. It's the first conflict that ever happened between humans. And then God says, Eve, what did you do? And, And she says, it's the serpent. And so now, whereas all creation used to live in harmony, now we're at conflict with God. We're in conflict with each other at a human level. We're in conflict with the devil. And sadly enough, we're now in conflict with all of creation as well. Creation is rebelling against our rule, against the stewardship that God has given us because we abused it. We abused it. But the good news was, That God didn't leave Adam and Eve without hope. He didn't leave them without hope that things couldn't have got worse. But then God says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He's speaking to the serpent here. He shall bruise your head. The seed of the woman shall bruise your head and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. And so what God is promising here is he's saying, listen, mankind, there is conflict now between me and you, between you and Satan, and between yourselves, and between you and all of creation, but I'm going to send someone to take care of that conflict. I'm going to send a seed from the woman who will end the conflict. That's the promise that God gives in the fall. And most of the Old Testament story is Israel waiting for that promised one. Is Israel waiting for the Messiah to come, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and end the conflict between us and God and restore all creation and remove and eradicate all of his enemies? And when Jesus steps on the scene in the New Testament, we see that promise gloriously fulfilled. Jesus is the Prince of Peace that every longing heart has been waiting for. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life in perfect peace with his Father. Jesus always did the right thing. He always worshipped God. He always glorified God. He was perfect. And when someone else entered into conflict with him, he always handled it perfectly. It's one of my favorite things to do in the Gospels is go and read how Jesus handles these conflicts. Sometimes it flips our understanding of how to conflict, on, to, to interact in to deal with conflict on its head, but he always does so perfectly, every single time. And I love to read it. And you want to know why Jesus came to do all that? Why he came to live in this perfect relationship of peace with the Father, and in perfect, uh, interacting with others in conflict perfectly? He did that for us. He did that to justify us, and to be our substitute. Because God demands that we live a life of perfect peace with him and with each other, and we fail to do that, don't we? We're reminded that we fail to do that every single day. So Jesus came to live a life of perfect peace with God in our place. But that's not all Jesus came to do. Jesus also came to pay the penalty for our sins, because God can't just wink at sin. And say that it's no big deal. Since he is a just, holy, and wrathful God, the penalty for our sin against him had to be paid. Had to be paid. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. On the cross, the wrath of God for our sins was poured out on Jesus. In other words, in his death, Jesus forsook his perfect life of peace with God and stood in our place to experience God's wrath for our sins. Think about that. That's what Jesus did for you. Jesus deserved perfect peace with God and laid that aside and said, Father, I don't want to do this. We see him do that in Gethsemane, right? I don't want to do this, but I know it's your will. So take the wrath that your people deserve and pour it out on me. You see, that's what makes the cross so horrific. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was struck by the wrath of God for us. He willingly took the fatal blow from God that we all deserve so that we could be at peace with God. That's the gospel. And because Jesus did that, the war, the conflict between us and God is over, it's finished. Jesus has restored us to a relationship of shalom, of peace with God. And and that's important for us to know because that's our only hope for dealing with all of the brokenness and the pain and the suffering and sin that surrounds us in this life. Being reconciled to God through Jesus is our only hope for peace in our relationships with each other. It has to start there. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, (laughs) Jason, I don't experience that right now. I may know intellectually that I'm at peace with God through Jesus, but conflict seems to be all around me. It's everywhere. And you know what? You're exactly right. Conflict is all around you. Because the fact of the matter is, just because the war with God is over and you now have peace with him doesn't mean that you're not still at war. You just have different opponents now. You're not, at, you're not experiencing enmity with God now. You're experiencing enmity with God's enemies. Instead of fighting him, you're fighting alongside him against his enemies, against his foes. So then the question that naturally follows is, who are these foes of God? Who are they? Well, their there's scripture teaches us that there, God has three foes, three enemies. The first one is the world. And by the world, I don't mean matter. I don't mean physical things. This this pulpit that's made out of wood is not one of God's enemies. The world, when Scripture speaks of the world, it means the world's way of thinking that is opposed to the way God tells us to think. The world's way of living that is opposed to the way God says that we are to live. Pretty much the world means everything that's opposed to God's authority. So that's what the world means. That's one of God's enemies. Another one of God's enemies is the flesh. The flesh. And the flesh is that principle within us, even now as Christians, that desires to rebel against God. Now, thankfully, because we're redeemed in Jesus and made a new creation and have the Holy Spirit within us, the flesh doesn't have the upper hand anymore, by God's grace. But it's still there, constantly seeking for ways to assert itself. And so God says, that is one of my enemies. I hate the flesh, and I will eradicate it one day, fully and finally, and the final of, of God's three enemies is the devil. And the devil was obviously um, an angel that God created, gave a position of power, and he turned against God, rebelled against him, and God expelled Satan and any of the angels, which then became demons that followed him from his presence. But those are God's enemies. Now here's the thing. Once you have peace with God with, through Christ, you are necessarily at war with God's enemies. You can't be at peace with God and with his enemies. You're either going to love the one and hate the other. There's no two ways about it. You have to choose a master. And graciously in the gospel, God chooses to make us uh, make himself our master and give us willing hearts that yield to him. And so as Christians, while we have peace with God, we are actively daily at war with the flesh, the world, and the devil. And we will never have ultimate peace until those three enemies are gone and done away with. And the good news is, is that we know on God's authority that one day that will happen. When Jesus comes again, he is going to eradicate his enemies. But the way that he will do that, the way that Jesus will bring peace and shalom on earth, the second time is through superior firepower. That's how he's going to do it. Jesus will not come the second time the way he came the first time. The first time Jesus came, he came humbly, meekly, to save, not to condemn. But when he comes again, he comes to decimate. He comes to drench his garments in the blood of his foes. He comes to destroy once and for all the flesh, the world, and the devil. That's how the story ends. And that's our only hope in this life, amen? It's our only hope. Jesus is coming to redeem all things. Now the problem is, that's not where we find ourselves in the story today, is it? We find ourselves in these sort of awkward in-between times, in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And while we live in these in-between times, um, we're going we're gonna to constantly be in conflict with God's enemies. And, and that's a conflict that we all want to be a part of, by the way. It's a privilege to be engaged in that conflict. And no matter how bloody the battle is, and trust me, I know many of you have your, your battle wounds that you can attest to, we can endure knowing that God is with us in the midst of it, in the midst of the battle, and we can rest in knowing that victory is certain, So you see, the story of Scripture and the story of our lives as Christians is a story of conflict from beginning to end. Well, in the beginning it started with peace, and by God's grace it will end with peace. But bookended all throughout there is conflict, and we live in those in-between times. So the fact that conflict is everywhere around us shouldn't really surprise us. shouldn't surprise us at all. But the question becomes, um, now how do we handle this conflict? How do we handle conflict in a way that will magnify the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? And even more specifically, how do we handle conflict in the context of our marriages? Because none of our marriages are free from conflict, are they? None of them. As a matter of fact, none of our relationships are free from conflict, are they? This side of heaven, if you truly want to know someone and move towards them in relationship, you will necessarily have conflict. It's inevitable. So it's vitally important that we know how to handle conflict and deal with it in a God-glorifying way. And thankfully, in his infinite mercy, he's given that to us in the gospel, and he's given that to us in his word. And tonight, we're going to see two essential truths from scripture about how to handle conflict in marriage. We're going to see when to confront and the source of sinful conflict. When to confront, and the source of sinful conflict. And just so you know, as far as the schedule is concerned, I was going to deal with conflict all in one night and realize that that was not possible. So um, I'm breaking it up into to, to two, different, um, uh, two different sessions, two different nights. Next week will be part two, and we'll get you an updated schedule um, that, that reflects those changes. So, first, let's look at when to confront when to confront. And I'm going to be honest with you. For me, this is one of the most difficult questions to answer. It is. It's, it's, it's extremely difficult because answering this question isn't always black and white. It's not. I'm not saying it's never black and white, but I'm saying it's, it's not always black and white. And here's what I mean by that. When we ask the question about whether or not to confront our spouse when they've sinned against us, there are two main passages that we turn to in Scripture. The first one is Matthew 18, verse 1. And Matthew 18, verse 1 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So Matthew 18:1 tells us to confront the sin in no uncertain terms, right? It's pretty clear. Now, on the other hand, we have passages like 1 Peter 4.8, which tells us to let love cover a multitude of sins. Or Proverbs 19.11, which says that it's a man's glory to overlook an offense. So in other words, we're told in these passages to overlook the sin out of love. So the question that naturally follows is, when are we to confront and choose to enter into conflict and when are we to let love cover a multitude of sins? Because Scripture tells us to do both. So then when do we do what? Now, if you're married or if you've been married for any period of time, you know that this is not just a purely academic question at all. It's not, really. You don't have, if you've been in close relationships at all, you know that this is not purely an academic question. The way that you answer that has huge ramifications for your relationship. Honestly, I spend most of my time in marriage counseling helping couples think through that. Think through that issue of when do we confront and when do we not? When do we let love cover a multitude of sins and when do we confront? So what's the answer? Well, the first thing we need to do in order to answer that question is to reflect on how God relates with us. We need to reflect on God's relationship with us. And the reason we start there is because our marriages are to be a picture of God's relationship with his people, of Jesus' relationship with his church. So when we look at that relationship, we see that we as God's people, we as the church, are constantly sinning against the Lord, aren't we? In thought, word, deed, action, we're sinning against him. And so now we go, all right, how does God handle that? How does God deal with us? Does he bring up every single sin and, and confront us with it? And say, hey, you need to work on this today. Hey, you need to work on this. And bring everything at once. Does he show you all of your sins at once? By God's grace, he hasn't done that to me. And and I'm thankful for that. If he's done that to you, I'm sorry. Um, And maybe we can talk to him together about that. But you know what? The fact of the matter, he doesn't do that with us, does he? He doesn't. Why? Because as Psalm 103 verse 8 tells us, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And Jesus tells us the same thing in Luke six thirty six. He tells us to be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So the point is, God is incredibly patient with us, isn't He? He doesn't overwhelm us and confront us with all of our sins at once. He graciously, wisely confronts our sins in ways that don't exasperate us, just like any good earthly father does. And any time that he does confront us, he does so because he loves us, because he cares for us. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't take sin seriously. Obviously, he does. He had it all paid for in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And yet now, in this relational uh, uh, context of grace that we have with him through his son, he's patient with us, isn't he? He's patient with us and doesn't overwhelm us with all of our sins at once, So as a general rule, when we ask ourselves, should I confront my spouse on this or not, our go-to response should be to let love cover a multitude of sins. That should be our go-to response. And as we do so, as we overlook the wrongs that are committed against us, we will be imitating God's extraordinary grace and love in our marriages. We'll be reflecting that for all to see. Now, here's the fear. The fear is my fear, is that some of you will abuse that. Um, you will abuse 1 Peter 4, 8 and never confront anyone in their, in their sins. And, and that's just as unloving. I want you to know that. It's just as unloving to not confront someone in an appropriate way um, as it is unloving to confront them on everything all the time, bringing up every little, every little instance and every little offense So if that's the general rule, then what are the exceptions to the rule? When are we to actually confront? Now this is going to frustrate some of you, (laughs) um, because it frustrates me a little bit, but we can't make a one-size-fits-all list of what actions or words can't or can be overlooked because everyone's different. What one partner could consider a minor, unimportant offense might deeply offend the other partner. The things that I'm able to overlook in my relationship with Kristen, if I took those same offenses and put them in the context of your relationship, you may not be able to overlook those. And so it's going to be different in in each case. So here are the two general guidelines, scriptural guidelines about when to confront and when to overlook. The first guideline is that you should not overlook something that does lasting damage to your relationship With your spouse. You should not overlook uh, something that does lasting damage to your relationship with your spouse. In other words, if you're trying to let love cover a multitude of sins, if you're trying to overlook the offense and you're unable to let it go, and it's sort of festering in your relationship and causing problems, you need to confront it. Don't think to yourself, oh, I just need to try to let it slip because, you know, I really want to let them know that I'm loving and that I'm really, I'm really strong and I can overlook it. Your marriage isn't worth you trying to prove anything. If you can't overlook an offense and, and it's, it's affecting the way that you interact with them and changing the way that you see them and look at them and you're drifting apart, you need to address it. Your marriage is worth it. Your spouse is worth it. Now don't misunderstand me, when your spouse offends you or sins against you, it's going to hurt no matter what. It's going to hurt. The question is, has that changed your feelings, your thoughts, your words, and your actions toward them for more than a brief period of time? In other words, does that pain keep coming back? Is it there? Has it not subsided? Are you drifting away and can you not let it go? You need to talk about it. You need to talk about it if, that, if that's the case. Otherwise, it's going to cause long-term damage to your relationship. And so if you refuse to confront, again, when you can't overlook an offense, then you're being unloving to your spouse. You're being unloving to them. You need to let them know about this so you guys can deal with it, repent, forgive, and be reconciled. Now, before I leave that thought, I want to clarify something. (laughs) uh, 1 Peter 4.8 says, And Proverbs um, 19.11 are not an excuse for you if you are the offending party, if you're the spouse that is sinning against your spouse. Those aren't excuses, those passages for you to sit around and go, well, let's see if they can overlook this one. Let's see, you know, uh, let's hold back on confessing and repenting. Let's see if if they can overlook it. That is not to be your attitude at all. And frankly, if that is your attitude, I'm more concerned about your relationship with the Lord ultimately than I am with your spouse. Because if we are walking in close fellowship with the Lord, we constantly are, are confessing and repenting of sins and attitudes and actions and thoughts and behaviors. Aren't we? Constantly. And so it's, it's, we start there with the Lord and then we do that with our spouse. Hey, I, I, I repent. I used a tone. I was being very impatient. I was valuing my time and my desires and what I was trying to accomplish more than you, and that was wrong. I don't go, oh yeah, I sinned against Kristen in this way. Let's see if she can overlook it. No, as the sins come into my heart, I'm committed to confessing those to her as soon as they happen. Keeping short accounts, confessing your sins against each other as quickly as they happen so reconciliation can happen as quickly as possible. That needs to be characterizing our marriages. I have to say that um, in light of, because otherwise people think, well, then they just always always get away with things. And so if we have that hard attitude ourselves of, I'm going to constantly be confessing and repenting of my sins against my spouse, then confronting isn't going to have to happen that often, is it? It's really not going to because we're keeping those short accounts ourselves. If you have any questions about that, please ask because I know that's, that's, that's a bit of a sticky one. Now the second general guideline is that you should not overlook an offense that does serious damage to God's reputation, to other people, or to the offender. To God's reputation, to other people, or to the offender. So let's, let's take each one of these in turn. First of all, you should not overlook an offense that does serious damage to God's reputation. So if you have a spouse that is consistently, as a regular pattern of their life, belittling, now this is a Christian spouse, belittling and, and bringing ill repute upon God's word, upon God's church, upon God's character, that's something that needs to be confronted. God's reputation is being slandered there it needs to be confronted because your spouse's um, Christian witness is at stake there amongst your kids, amongst you, amongst anyone who's, who's interacting with them. And so that needs to be confronted and that needs to be addressed if it's serious, it's causing serious damage to God's reputation. Secondly, you shouldn't overlook an offense that does serious damage to other people. Shouldn't overlook an offense that does serious damage to other people. So for example... Um, If you have a physically abusive spouse, that needs to be talked about and confronted and dealt with. Lovingly, graciously, that needs to be dealt with, though, immediately. Um, If your spouse has a problem with anger when they're driving and they drive erratically, and it's putting your, your kids in danger, that needs to be talked about. If it's putting other people in harm, serious damage to other people, then it needs to be talked about. Lastly, you shouldn't overlook an offense that does serious damage to the offender themselves. If it's doing serious, serious damage to the offender themselves, then you need to address it. If you have a spouse that is in a pattern of consistently abusing alcohol, you need to address that with them. If they're participating in things that are consistently causing them to drift away from the Lord and is quickly making the, uh, leading them to make shipwreck of faith, that needs to be confronted and talked about. And again, these don't need to be confronted as a personal vendetta or because you're annoyed with your, your, um, your spouse's sin. You don't confront them because it's inconvenient to you. You confront them because you love them and because you love the people around them and you love the Lord. And so you want to show that love to them um, by confronting them. Now, here's the thing. These are really difficult to apply in generalities. Where we make these decisions is on the ground level, isn't it? In real life. And it takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of input from other people before you make these sorts of decisions. In other words, confrontation shouldn't be entered into lightly. We should take it seriously. It's a responsibility that we have. Uh, as ministers of reconciliation, uh, reconciling people to the Lord when they've turned away from him. And so we need, to, we need to take that seriously. And again, we only resort to confrontation when we can't overlook an offense or it's, it's any of the other three criteria. a serious Causing serious damage to God's reputation, other people, or the offender um, themselves. Secondly, let's look at the source of sinful conflict the source of sinful conflict. Look at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 with me. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, in no Uncertain terms. James lets us know that the source of any sinful conflict in our marriages is our own passions. It's our own passions, and when he uses that word passions, literally, what he's saying there is is over desires. What's causing these fights and these quarrels? It's your over desires. Because desires, in and of themselves, are not bad, are they? I have a desire um, to be respected by other people. Um, that I live in relationship with. I, I want them to respect me. Now, that's, that's a good desire, healthy desire. When I'm willing to sin in order to get that respect, that's an over-desire. That's when I, it, it's crossed the line. I've taken a good desire and perverted it and turned it into a sinful thing. And that's what James is talking about that here. He's talking about desires that we want so much that we're willing to sin to get them. So the source of sinful conflicts in our marriages are the things that we desire too much. And where do those desires come from? They come from our hearts. That's what James says in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, they come from within you. They come from your heart. So what's the problem? Our hearts are the problem. And that's important to remember because when we get in conflict with our spouses, our temptation is going to be to blame our sin on something outside of us. That's going to be the temptation. But the truth is we can't blame our sin on a long day at the office or a long day with the kids or a spouse's actions or traffic or an illness or hormones or anything else. The reason we sin is because of the sinful desires of our own hearts. So one of the first things we need to do anytime we find ourselves in a conflict is to ask ourselves, what do I want right now more than Christ and how am I acting to get it? What am I wanting more than Jesus? What am I sinning um, in order to get? So I encourage you to ask yourself, even right now, tonight, what are the things that you desire so much that you're willing to sin to get them? Not just what are the actions, what's behind those actions? What's driving? What's the motivating factor? Is it approval or comfort or success or power or recognition or acceptance or control? Ask yourself, why Why, do, why am I doing this? What do I want? And the reason it's important for us to know what it is that we're sinfully desiring is because that desire is going to seek to influence how we respond to conflict. And it's helpful for us to know, what are my, what's my default when I get into conflict? What is, what's my, my sinful default mo, uh, uh, approach to conflict because of the, the issues of, of, that are going on inside of my heart? For example, if your heart typically desires power or success or comfort, then you're probably going to enter into conflict seeking to win at all costs. Your goal is going to be to bulldoze your spouse, whether that be through argumentation, trying to nitpick them with your, with your logic, losing your temper, just blowing up, so that they're like, all right, it's not worth this. Go ahead and have your way. Or just slowly, methodically, painfully wearing your spouse down. That's how you'll be tempted to respond. Or if you're a person who typically desires approval, then you're probably going to seek to please the other person at all costs you may do this by being quick to agree with them or by overcommitting yourself to whatever they're seeking to get from you because you fear saying no to them because they might reject you and that's your greatest fear so that's how you'll be tempted to respond or if you're a person who desires approval or comfort then you may just seek to avoid conflict altogether by being a social recluse or, or never really getting close enough for anybody to know you and hurt you. And if you're this person, typically, even when you know you should confront someone, you won't because it makes you uncomfortable. And you know that they might reject you. And it's not worth that. So that's how you'll be tempted to respond. Now, none of those are biblical options for the Christian or for his marriage, they're not options. Because in each of, those, if each of those options, we're giving in to the sinful desires of our hearts rather than fighting against them. And that's the ultimate conflict. The ultimate conflict is between the flesh and the spirit duking it out in our hearts. Now the good news is because we're a new creation in Christ, we have the power to walk according to the spirit. And we can successfully, consistently fight against the flesh. That doesn't mean it's going to happen every time. And it certainly doesn't mean that everything is lost when we do give in to the flesh. But it does mean that we have the ability to walk according to the Spirit because the Spirit of Jesus lives within us. So here's what we're going to do. Um, like I said, we're going to, I'm going to stop here so we have enough time um, for question and answer. If I kept going, we would be here well until 8 o'clock. And I don't want to do that to anybody. <laughs> um, so let me pray And then we'll jump right into our time of Q&A. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that though we have turned from you and sinned against you and willfully entered into conflict with you, you have brought peace through the Prince of Peace, your Son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the reconciliation that we have in him with you. And Lord, we're thankful that because we have peace with you, we can be people who pursue peace with others in so much as it depends on us. And we're thankful that we have been given in Jesus a a ministry of reconciliation, reconciling people, fallen men, brothers and sisters in Christ, to you. Lord, what an incredible privilege. So we pray that we would model this well. We pray that we would make good use of the gospel and your spirit and your word and the incredible gift of, of prayer and speaking with you so that, so that others would see that we are your disciples by how we love each other in our marriages, with our children, in the church, and with unbelievers as well. Father, we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen. All right, well, let me see what questions we have here, and feel free to continue to pour them in here. The first one is, Let me make sure I've got the whole thing here. Jesus, he lived perfectly, but because he is also God, he is the only one who could survive the wrath of the Father and not be crushed. Man is too weak and frail to sustain the full wrath of God. Therefore, God's wrath could not have been satisfied without Jesus. Is that a biblical interpretation? Well, obviously... um, I would, I would say yes, and also that God's, God's wrath is poured out on mankind for all eternity in hell. So that would have been um, always an option for God to not save anybody. It would have been perfectly just for God to allow everyone to go to hell. That's a difficult thing to grapple with, but that's what we deserve in and of ourselves. Um, but why Jesus had to come is because... Um, yeah, he had to pay the penalty for for men's sins. He had to be our substitute. He had to be fully man in order to um take our place as a fitting substitute. So yes, I think that that is a that is a that is a correct biblical interpretation. If you are looking for more on that, the best work that I can point you to is by Athanasius on why God became man. It is an absolutely incredibly good book. And it's a classic dealing specifically with why Jesus had to be fully God and fully man. It was Matthew eighteen fifteen, not 18, 1. Thank you very much, whoever said that. Next question. When is church counseling appropriate for conflict in marriage? I think uh, that's a very, very good question. I think any time that um, conflict... Comes to an impasse, and it's it's constantly grating on one or both parties in the marriage, and you you can't you can't come to a uh, a compromise, and neither person is is willing to to give, and you can't move forward in love. Then that's a very appropriate time um, to to pursue marriage counseling in the context of the church. And if I can be so bold as to say this and encourage you, grab those those conflicts earlier rather than later. Um, go and see, go and see uh, if you're thinking, if you have an inkling of a suspicion um, that you might need some mediation or, or some help or some counsel, a third party that can kind of look at what's going on in an objective way, go for it. Um, the, the struggle oftentimes for couples is is they, they wait a really long time. Often by the time they come to me, it, it's it's really bad. It's really bad. And Bad things have happened as a result. Pretty extreme sins have happened against each other. And so I would much rather you come when those conflicts are really small and meet with me one or two times than wait, you know, three or four years or however long when those are those are really big issues. Now, regardless of what I would like, um, it's, it's pleasing to God uh, when we deal with conflict um, like that quickly rather than waiting for it and just... Um, you know, letting it letting it go on and on forever. Because the problem is, as those things aren't dealt with, you start to just drift, and you start to lead your own lives and deal with things in different ways. And um, it's just it's just not good. It's not healthy. And so I would I would jump on it earlier rather than later. Boy, I didn't say anything controversial tonight for you guys tonight, huh? Okay. Well, I'm I'm sure I'll get you. Get you next week then, because next week what we're going to specifically talk about is um, the motives for repenting, why we should repent when we sin against our spouses, and what repentance is and is not, and also we're going to talk about um, uh, the motive for forgiving why we should forgive our spouses, and what forgiveness is and is not. And, and I, can, I just encourage you to come to that because if there's one thing that shocks me that I see in marriages, it's how little repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation actually happen um, in a biblical way. And so, a little bit of a teaser for you guys. Um, it's, a, it's a big issue that I see um, and it just destroys marriages. It just destroys marriages. So I hope you guys come to that. And uh, if you don't have any other questions, we're actually going to get out of here early. How incredible. I kept myself within some time limits and it sort of backfired on me. But let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful um, just for your grace towards us. And what an incredible, incredible privilege it is. Um, to know you and be known by you, and to know each other, Lord, in in relationship to, to marriage with our spouses and relationship to the, the body of Christ. Lord, thank you um, that when you called us to yourself, you didn't just um, leave us here, but you've called us to a community. You've called us to the church. You've called us to the body of Christ. And what an incredible privilege it is to be a part of that and to walk in fellowship together. And uh, we just pray that you would teach us, Um, how to love each other better in light of the incredible love that you have shown us in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. We love you and ask this in his name. Amen.